The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening today's episode? Today, we are going to perhaps the most well-studied war of all time, and we're headed Mm. to Rome. Oh. I'm like, I'm lost already. Oh, wait. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Let's, Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In today's episode, we are going to be asking a very provocative question. Ooh. Are you ready? Yeah. Should we remember Augustus? For his war on women. I don't know. I just, I went there with the question. I like it. It's very provocative. Do you know who Augustus is? No. Because all I went to is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Augustus Glue. (laughs) No? Okay. So, uh, Caesar, the original. Not the Julius, (laughs) who named July after himself. Oh. Now you know. Now I know. Okay. He uh, died. Well, he's murdered. He's chopped to pieces. Yes, by hordes of people, right? Brutus and... A2 Brutus. Isn't that like the famous... All the things. And Augustus is a distant relative that he adopts as his heir. Oh. As his son. Caesar. Yes. So he becomes, his name is Octavian, and he becomes Caesar Augustus later in life after a long journey to that title. Oh. Okay. Um, Augustus names a month after himself as well because you've got to. I'm with you. August. Yeah. I'm there. Well, actually, I think it's his people that do, but. Anyway, it's oh, I a thought you were going to be like, no, Brooke, it's October. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> but enough of these men. They are well-known men in world history, mm. and I'm over them. Lesser known are the women who surround them, although Cleopatra is probably yes. one you've heard of. Abby. Um, Octavia is Octavian's sister, and she's so clever. <laughs> I know. I mean, those parents nailed it. Yep. So we're going to be talking about Octavia today. We're going to be talking about Cleopatra. Um, we are also going to be talking about some women that come much later. They're known as the Julias because they're all named Julia. Great name. Yeah. Good for them. So 
you know, it's, jewel- like, it's like the Heathers back in the day. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm very excited because for this episode, um, we are joined by a Cornell historian, Dr. Oh. Barry Strauss. What's up, Barry? He is going to be uh, teaching us this well-known history, but emphasizing women. He has recently written about Cleopatra. He has a book coming out in March of 2022 called The War That Made the Empire. And it specifically is talking about this massive war, which in history we see as between Mark Antony and Octavian. And to me, there are women strapped like right in the middle of this conflict yeah octavia octavian's sister is married to mark antony <gasps> so she's sort of like caught in the middle and uh, in all of that um octavian has reason to be threatened by cleopatra because cleopatra had an affair with julius caesar and she has his Air. Air. Oh man. <laughs> so whose name is Caesar? <laughs> what? So How on the nose is that one? Yeah. So anyway, there's there's a lot to these these women are central in the story. And to me, there is there's no telling the story without them. And yet somehow through history, the male names seem to pop to the top of the story. Mm. And I'm so excited because Barry Strauss is going to help us tell a more inclusive story um, of, of this war that many people, you know, this classic war that most people know, but maybe don't know the ways that women were integral in it. And okay. is it a war on women? I'll let you decide when you get to the end. Are we letting them decide? <laughs> I don't know. I, I posed the question. So. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so let's have Dr. Barry Strauss introduce himself. Uh, I'm Barry Strauss, and I am the Bryce and Edith M. Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University, where I'm also a professor of history and classics. And my specialties are ancient history and military history. I'm also a fellow, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution in Stanford. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. <laughs> quite a quite an accomplished career. Um, I'm curious with your research into military history and being uh-huh. in ancient history, how did you get into researching some women's history in that same context? Well, um, you know, it's a great question. I, I was going to write about Julius Caesar and when I did, I realized that women played a very important role in his life and his career, beginning with his mother. Um, who had an enormous influence on him, both when he was young and then later in his career. Um, and he had a series of wives, but uh, probably the most influential woman in his life, in his adult life, was his his mistress, Cleopatra, who was the queen of Egypt. And uh, the story of the two of them is is really quite a remarkable one. Um, so that, that really got me interested. Um, then I... Um, got asked to write a book about Roman emperors. And if you write about Roman emperors in imperial history, it's impossible not to also write about imperial women because they're just so important and they play such a big role in, uh, in the politics of, of the empire. Um, my, I, I just finished a book, which is going to come out in March of 2022 called the war that made the Roman empire. 
Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium, which is a battle in 30 BC, 31 BC, excuse me, 31 BC, September 2nd, 31 BC, and it's also part of a campaign and a war that lasts from, well, I guess from 31 to 30 BC. And as the title tells you, Cleopatra is at the center of it. So you can't tell the story without talking about Cleopatra. But it also turns out that there's another woman who plays a very important role, and that is a woman named Octavia, who has the distinction of being uh, Octavian's sister, so the sister of the future Emperor Augustus, and also the wife of Mark Antony. Um, uh, so she's got a, a tough role. And one of the things I discovered in reading about her is that she's often been portrayed as this um, much abused good girl who gets pushed around by uh, her brother, her husband, and um, her rival, Cleopatra. But when you look more closely, you realize that Octavia was one shrewd cookie and a very powerful political player in her own right. Uh, so part of the fun and excitement of this was, was telling her story as well. Also a little bit about her mother and Octavia's mother, a woman named Atia, also very interesting. So I did watch the series Rome on Netflix. Right. So yeah. I know that this story is a very long one. It took many right. seasons for them to hatch right. out. Right, yeah. <laughs> is there an abridged version um, or a key sort of highlights that you could share with everybody about this this story and the ways that women are involved in some of the history that we might already sure. know. Sure. So, um, okay. So we all know that the first emperor of Rome is Augustus. Um, that's, that's an, that's a title. That's not his name. And it means more or less the reverend, um, the revered one. Uh, he's born Gaius Octavius. He comes from, um, a middling elite family, not at the very top of the Roman tree. Um, his claim to fame is his mother's mother's family. Uh, his mother's mother is named Julia, and she's the sister of Julius Caesar. And it's because of that that this young kid, Gaius Octavius, comes to the attention of his great uncle, Julius Caesar, um, uh, and it launches him on his career. Um, uh, his father dies when he's four, I think. Um, Man, a man also named Gaius Octavius, and his mother, Atia, who remarries, is really responsible for raising the young boy. And it's her, actually, she turns him over for part of his childhood to her mother, Julia, who um, is the, the sister of Julius Caesar. So he's raised partly in his grandmother's house in Rome. So it's, it's these women. He also has his sister, his older sister, Octavia. Um, they're very close. And uh, these women, these three women, his sister, his mother, his grandmother, play a huge role in his life and preparing him um, to to impress his great uncle, Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, who doesn't have any legitimate children of his own, he has a daughter, but she dies in childbirth, uh, quite tragically, about 10 years before Caesar's assassinated. Uh, Julius Caesar is looking to his great nephew uh, through his sister's daughter. Uh, to replace him. So it's, it's through the, the female line, which is kind of interesting. It's not the way the Romans preferred to do things. Um, so from the very beginning, the guy who's going to become Rome's first emperor, uh, is someone who owes a lot to women. The second part of the story is that after Caesar is, so before Caesar's assassinated, 
a few months before he's assassinated, he appoints, uh, he, he rewrites his will and names uh, Gaius Octavius, his nephew, to be his heir and to be his posthumously adopted son. Posthumous adoption in Rome is not a thing. It's not legal. But Julius Caesar writes his own rules. And after he's assassinated and the will is read, Gaius Octavius says, okay, I accept. I'm now Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, By Roman practice, he would have been named Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. And so scholars refer to him in this point of his career as Octavian. He always called himself Julius Caesar, but it's confusing to call him Julius Caesar since we think of the main Julius Caesar. So he's then, after Caesar's assassination, he's locked in uh, a series of wars for power, first with the assassins, most famously Brutus and Cassius, and then with Caesar's lieutenant, who we've all heard of, Mark Antony. Um, and uh, the two of them are, uh, Ant- first of all, Antony and Octavian first fight each other. Then they join forces against Brutus and Cassius. They defeat Brutus and Cassius, and they decide to divide up the Roman world. There are actually three players, but um, the third one's not very important. Uh, Octavian and Antony are the main players. Octavian, Antony takes the east, and Octavian takes the west. It's generally thought that taking the east is is the better job because it's very, very wealthy. And there are some border wars to be fought and won that will gain you prestige in Rome. The West is less wealthy, and it's got a huge political headache. Um, Whoever runs the West has got to settle the veterans of his armies on land in Italy, which has to be stolen from other people who already own the land. This is a very tough job, and Octavian is stuck with it. Um, And while Antony is in the East... Octavian um, uh, is involved in trying to take land away from some Romans and give them to his veterans. Uh, the people who he takes lands away from are championed by Antony's brother and Antony's wife, a woman named Fulvia. And Fulvia is a remarkable example of an, a Roman elite woman with agency. She and her brother-in-law raise an army. She's out there raising an army. According to some sources, she actually puts on a military uniform. She wear, puts on a sword. We don't know if that's really true or not. Uh, Roman propaganda is really vicious. Uh, and talk about fake news. It's full of fake news, right, left, and center. So we can't be sure if that's true or not. We can be sure she plays a key role in raising this army uh, against would, Octavian. Would wearing a uniform be a way to discredit her like look at her she's cross-dressing or- yes 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 it would be a way to discredit her which is another reason to be suspicious but we can't be sure it really happened um we just can't be sure but she might have um but she did raise this army she is with the army that's laid siege to in central italy by octavian the really interesting piece of evidence we have is we have some of the uh some of the bullets uh, some of the slings that were used in the siege. They survived. And some of them have on them rude messages. Um, just like nowadays, bombs sometimes have rude messages about the enemy. These slings had rude messages. And some of them were rude messages about this woman, Fulvia, uh, and compl- rude messages about her private parts. They're really insulting and obscene. Uh, and we have them. They actually exist. So we know she was involved, and we know that the enemy uh, made a big deal about her involvement. 
Um, and it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't flattering. It was basically saying to the other side, you guys are wusses. You need a woman to fight your battles for you. That's the way that would have, um, that's the way that propaganda would have worked. So she's helping Anthony sort of build his military. Yes, but he also has he has plausible deniability because he's off in the east um, and doesn't know what's going on. And on top of uh, he could say he doesn't know what's going on. She and Anthony's brother are fighting Octavian and they lose. They're forced to go. Octavian lets them escape and they go into exile. She goes off to Greece. But she's not a happy camper because her husband's having an affair while this is going on. He is flagrantly having an affair with Julius Caesar's ex-mistress, the Queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And um, there is the famous moment, it's recorded in Shakespeare's uh, Antony and Cleopatra, in which Cleopatra meets Antony at the city of Tarsus, which is now in southern Turkey. She comes on a gilded barge magnificently. And uh, she makes a huge splash and suggests that the two of them join forces. Antony and Cleopatra. And Antony says, okay, she has uh, a very, she's probably the wealthiest woman in the world. Ancient Egypt is an extremely wealthy country uh, because of the fertility of the soil as a result of the annual flooding of the Nile. It's one of the breadbaskets of the ancient world, along with Sicily and Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, those are probably, and Part of northern Italy is very fertile as well, the Po Valley. So Egypt's a very, very wealthy place, and she can fund. Um, uh, she can give Antony a lot of funds um, and weapons. Also, she's a brilliant woman. One of the reasons that she and Caesar were attracted to each other is they're two. They're they're, they're among the few intellect each other's intellectual equals in the Roman world. Um, uh, I don't think Antony is her intellectual equal the way Caesar was, but there's still quite an attraction there. Cleopatra is a shrewd political player. She knows that her kingdom only exists um, at the sufferance of the Romans. Uh, she's learned from her father that in order to survive on her throne, she has to have Roman support. And she gets it um, by making political and bedroom alliances, first with Julius Caesar and then with Mark Antony. She gave birth to uh, a, a boy who she said was Caesar's uh, illegitimate son. Caesar allowed her to name uh, the child after him. So his name is Ptolemy the Fifteenth Caesar. We call him Caesarian. That's uh, the nickname that he had. Um, and now she starts this affair with Antony, uh, and um, she gets pregnant, and she eventually has twins by. Antony. Uh, Antony himself is long gone at that point. Um, his wife, Fulvia, dies in Greece um, shortly afterwards. Some say of a broken heart because of her, her husband had betrayed her, but perhaps not. Did you have a question, Kelsey? Yeah, I wanted to ask how common um, affairs and, you know, having these like multiple relationships were in the, you know, Roman elite. This is, uh, this is very common. So, you know, we're in the swinging sixties of, of Roman history. You know, the elites are misbehaving like crazy. They're misbehaving like crazy. This is, um, you know, the most famous Latin love poet is a man named Catullus. And this is his generation. This is when he's around. Um, 
these, these are the what it's looked on later as the naughty battle days. Uh, but Romans were originally a very prim, to use an anachronistic term, they were a Puritan society. Um, no longer, not in this period, not at this period at the end of the Roman Republic. Uh, Caesar has many affairs. Uh, Antony has many affairs. Octavian has many affairs. Um, and some of the women have affairs too. In, you know, in like, I'm thinking Tudor history and things like right. that, many women were fine with the affairs happening so long as it was discreet and um, didn't impact. Like I'm thinking about Catherine of Aragon. Right. She, she knew those affairs were happening, but right. it didn't really matter until she right. realized, oh no, like I'm going to lose the, the monarchy. <laughs> like, like my yeah. children yeah. are going to be illegitimate right. and all those right. things. Um, and so I'm curious, was there that same sort of relationship to power that the affairs didn't matter unless they impacted their power? I think that's right. I mean, one of the problems with Antony and Cleopatra was that it was so public. Mm -hmm. I did have another question about Cleopatra. Right. I learned yeah. recently um, that there were actually many Cleopatras in her ancestry, and that, yes, yes. Uh, I'm wondering it's if you a, speak to that a little bit. I don't know much. Sure. About. I mean, Cleop so Cleopatra um, is descended from many different people, but one of them is the the Macedonian monarchy. Um, Egypt was conquered by the king of Macedon, Alexander the Great, in the fourth century BC. And one of his generals, generals Ptolemy, another Macedonian, took um, power in Egypt after Alexander's death. Um, and um, uh, the dynasty continued down to Cleopatra's day. Cleopatra was a name in the dynasty. Uh, it means the fame, uh, famous father or uh, my father's fame or the glory of my father, something like that. And so she's not the first queen to have the name Cleopatra. There are other Cleopatras in the dynasty. Cleopatra and Anthony have this affair. Yes. Um, obviously, that's hurtful to Fulvia. Um, yes. And there's this major war that happens that is um, that results in a big shift in the empire. Yes. Right. Okay. So to get there, it's a little complicated. First of all, uh, Antony and Octavian, in the last century of the Roman Republic, uh, you get these series of very powerful men who end up fighting each other to be top dog in Rome. So it's almost baked into the cake that Antony and Octavian are going to fight each other. And they almost do um, until Fulvia dies and um, the husband of, Ant of Octavian's sister, Octavia, dies. She's a widow. Antony's a widower. They come up with a brilliant idea that Antony should marry Octavia uh, and they should patch up the quarrel between these two families. Uh, this is very common in Roman politics. Um, if you want to understand Roman elite politics in the late Republic, in the Republic, and even in the Empire as well, think of it as a series of, of aristocratic houses competing with each other. Or if you prefer, think of it as a, fam a series of gangster families competing with each other. And it's not uncommon in those situations for women to be the go-between, for marriages to be arranged where the woman of one house marries a man from another house and patches up the quarrel between the two houses. The question is always then, which house is she loyal to, her birth family or her, her marriage family? And Octavia is, 
it's clear that even though she has a reputation as a being the ultimate good girl, totally loyal and subservient to her husband, Mark Antony, who abuses her and pushes her around, in fact, she is a very shrewd political player who comes from one of the top political families in Rome and knows how to play the game. And she uses her position to patch up quarrels between her husband and her brother, and sometimes to help her brother against her, her husband. Uh, that's one of the things that's so interesting about her. She and Antony get married, and Antony, um, they go off. Antony's now living in Athens. That's where he's governing the East from. They go off to Athens. Uh, it's clear they have a blissful time together. The Athenians worship them literally. They worship them as deities. Um, they make them gods and goddesses. Um, she, um, she, um, um, is pregnant. She gives birth to a child, but a daughter, uh, which is never quite good enough in the eyes of a Roman man. Uh, and then later on, she gives birth to a second daughter. Uh, these two daughters are each called Antonia. That's the go down in history, as, but she doesn't give birth to a son. Antony has several sons already from his other marriages. Uh, from earlier marriages, he has two sons. And then from Cleopatra, he has a third son and a daughter. The relationship with Antony and uh, Octavian waxes and wanes. Antony has an ambition to be as great a general as Julius Caesar. And so he launches a war in, uh, in the East uh, against what is now we call nowadays Iran. And he, uh, he marches into what's now Eastern Turkey and Armenia uh, and uh, – wants to invade northwestern Iran, which he does, and he loses. It's a failure. Um, and he has to come back to the Mediterranean coast. Right now, um, the only source of money and support he has is Cleopatra. So he goes back into the arms of Cleopatra. In the meantime, in the West, Octavian has to fight a war of his own. He's fighting a leftover of the civil wars of Caesar and Pompey. He's fighting the son of uh, Pompey the Great, who had opposed Caesar. Pompey's son named Sextus Pompey has a naval uh, operation going, a little naval empire based in Sicily. And Octavian, who's not a great general, is forced to learn how to fight at sea. Luckily for him, his closest friend from boyhood is a man who is a military genius. His name is Agrippa. And uh, Agrippa, who's already proven himself as a general on land, now reinvents himself as an admiral. And thanks to Agrippa, uh, Octavian is able to defeat Sextus Pompey and to become the sole ruler of the Roman West. So now we have a situation in which uh, Octavian's in the West and he's sitting pretty. He's defeated his opponents. Antony's in the east. He's licking his wounds, but he is rebuilding his power thanks to Cleopatra. Um, he really is more dependent on her than ever. And she's helping Antony to rebuild his army and to build a massive fleet. And if you're Octavian, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of this massive fleet? It can only be to oppose him, who now uh, is the guy who's been so successful at sea in the West. So things are moving rapidly towards a showdown between these two men. And in 32 BC, there's finally a break between them. 
Um, Octavian, who's a very shrewd public relations guy, declares war on Cleopatra, not on Antony, but on Cleopatra, because he says, I don't want to make war on a fellow Roman. Antony, in the meantime, uh, he and Cleopatra organize their fleet. They move it from Egypt to Ephesus and what's now the coast of Turkey and get ready to go westward. And Antony divorces Octavia, who's still technically his wife. He's given her the brush off before this time, but he's never actually divorced her. And she lives in Antony's house in Rome. He now tells her, I divorce you and you have to leave my house, which she does tearfully, apparently. Um, and she uh, moves into one of her brother's houses. Um, but there's now this, this rift between them. Um, this doesn't play well in Rome, but it probably plays very well in the East because the Egyptians consider Cleopatra to be nothing less than a goddess. They associate her with the goddess Isis, the ultimate woman's goddess, um, the goddess who in some ways, um, well, she's the ultimate woman's goddess, let us, let us say, tremendously popular in the Mediterranean world. Cleopatra as the, as, as the ruler of Egypt is considered divine in any case, but she's associated with Isis. And Antony has long been associated with two gods of his own. One is Dionysus. Dionysus, we think of as the god of wine and like not exactly a, a military kind of god. But in the East, he's also thought of as a great conqueror, the, conquer man, the god who conquered Asia uh, by the side of Alexander the Great. He was Alexander's patron god. Um, Antony's been associated with Dionysus for some time. He now gets associated with Osiris, the Egyptian god who is the consort of Isis. So in the propaganda of the Eastern Mediterranean, Antony and Cleopatra are a couple. They're Isis and Osiris uh, and Dionysus, uh, and they are leading the Roman East in a war uh, of revenge against Rome, uh, the hated conqueror who has conquered the east it's it's kind of a war of resistance of the east versus the west anthony's still a roman he's a shrewd political player as well and he has representatives in rome who say don't get him wrong this guy hasn't uh become completely easternized he's still marcus antonius a roman noble and he puts rome first so he's playing it you know differently to different audiences. It's really a remarkable moment when you think about it. The enormous power that Cleopatra has, both politically and financially, and even militarily, because uh, this great fleet that they build, um, there's an Egyptian contingent in it, 60 ships, and the admiral of this fleet is Cleopatra herself. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the product is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. 
And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are yes you, but they are fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) But they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, And they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. Yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, which is really cool. So definitely if you're interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram, and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. How are they perceived in Rome? Anthony obviously has these people that are um, supporting him. And in the East, Cleopatra is perceived as this goddess. Um, right. So, so right. her womanhood is not problematic in the East. Is it no. problematic in the West? Yes, very problematic. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's completely unproblematic in the East, but it's not all that problematic. In the West, it's very problematic. Rome is a much more male chauvinist society, uh, by to use our terms. Uh, and, um, you know, Octavian scores propaganda points in saying that Antony is under the thumb of a woman. He has been unmanned by the Egyptian sorceress, Cleopatra. Octavian has a real problem with Cleopatra, and that's the following. Octavian is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, but Cleopatra's son, Caesarian, is the birth son of Julius Caesar. He's the only person in the world to have Caesar's blood flowing in his veins. So Octavian says, my name is Julius Caesar. I am Julius Caesar's heir. But he has this problem. There's the real heir of Julius Caesar living in living in Egypt. So he and Cleopatra are going to be at odds. Um, so uh, Octavian is, you know, scoring propaganda points. But Octavian has a problem. Um, he's not really a member of the Roman nobility. Remember, I said that his father came from kind of a medium noble family. He's only a member of the nobility through virtue of adoption and descent for his mother's side. A lot of Roman aristocrats hate him. They prefer Antony, who's a true noble. And they flee Rome, and they go to the east, and they join Antony. Hundreds of them, maybe 300, we think, leave Rome to join Antony. Mm-hmm. And from the word go, Cleopatra's controversial. A lot of these old Romans hate her. They want her out. They want her shipped back to Egypt. They want this to be a man's war and a war dominated by Roman. Antony has other allies in the East from other kingdoms. The most famous of them is King Herod, the king of the Jews, uh, you know, who's famous and infamous. But there are various other uh, kings and princes of the Eastern world who are in this coalition army. But Cleopatra is by far the most famous and most controversial member. But she refuses to go back to Egypt. 
first of all, she uh, has a certain influence of Anthony because not doesn't it's not just that she shares his bed, but she's very intelligent, strategic woman. Secondly, she's paying for this expedition. She's funding it. She has a lot of clout. And she doesn't want to leave Antony for one minute for two reasons. First of all, she doesn't really trust him to have Egypt's interests in mind. Um, his, his main interest is himself and Rome. Egypt is secondary. Secondly, she knows very well how shrewd Octavian is and that he might get his sister to reckon, he might make a deal with Antony and reconcile Octavia and Antony. So Cleopatra is not leaving. She insists on staying. So in the winter of 32 BC, this army uh, with Antony and Cleopatra and a lot of angry no- Roman nobles who want to get rid of her, they move westward from uh, the coast of Turkey. They go to Athens and then to the west coast of Greece. And their main naval base is at a place called Actium. Uh, it's in northwestern Greece. But Antony and Cleopatra spend the winter in the Peloponnesus, in a city called Patras, don't worry about the name, but they're they're living in luxury in a city. They're not in a naval camp. Um, in the spring of thirty one, and and they have a huge navy. They have excellent ships. They have state of the art equipment, um, tremendous ships, and they have the capability of invading Italy. It would be a very bloody and difficult thing to do, but they could do it. Mm-hmm. They decide not to. Um, and we're not really sure why. Is it because Antony lost his nerve? Is it because he thinks his chances are better staying in Greece and having the enemy come to him? Or is it because Cleopatra doesn't want to move her ships so far away from Egypt? Maybe she wants to guide, be able to guard the routes to Egypt in case the enemy gets any ideas of sailing to the east while she is away. In any case, they stay in Greece. And, and then in about March of 31 BC, disaster strikes. Uh, Octavian's Admiral Agrippa leads a raid, a large raid that strikes at Antony and Cleopatra's main naval base, uh, main supply base in southern Greece. And they take it. Uh, you know, it is a, a dramatic and successful attack by sea. And they take their main supply base, base kill the commander, who is an exiled king. Uh, and they use it as a base of their own to disrupt supplies. Antony and Cleopatra's huge army and navy could not be fed by the resources of Greece. Greece then, as now, is a poor country. It does not have the agricultural resources to feed hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers and sailors. Where did the food come from? It came from Egypt and from Syria. Uh, and there was this, a chain of islands and ports uh, and supply ships bringing the food. Now that chain is cut off, and life starts to get very difficult for Antony and Cleopatra. And there follows a six-month campaign on the northwestern coast of of Greece, in which, to make a long story short, things go very badly for them. Octavian sails across, he joins Agrippa, and they end up blockading Antony and Cleopatra at Actium. Um, And so the Battle of Actium itself... um, is uh, uh, it's an attempt to escape the blockade and to break out. It's what we call a breakout battle. And it is a breakout battle. And I'm sorry, I'm going to leave a cliffhanger. If you want to understand this, 
real story of what Cleopatra does in this battle, you're going to have to read my book because the real story is very different than the story we get in Shakespeare and Plutarch. Mm. Um, and Cleopatra is uh, a fascinating, tough, shrewd, strategic player. That's that's all I can say. Okay. Well, I'm excited. And so it sounds like she is instrumental in in trying to figure out how to wiggle her way out of that situation. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. She is never at a loss. She is never at a loss. And she and Antony and not very many of their ships do escape. They break out and they make their way back to Egypt, um, where when Cleopatra arrives back in Alexandria, she has her ships. She had she has wreaths put on the front of her ships as if she's won a great victory. She doesn't want anyone to know what's really happened. And as soon as she gets to town, she battens down the hatches and she has has her enemies executed. Uh, so she can get ready to make war in Egypt and to survive. Now, what transpires next is probably very famous. Um, very famous. You know, she and Anthony are, um, well, I'll let you tell the, tell the bit, but, um, but I'm curious if you wouldn't mind uh, also talking about their relationship, because some of the things you've said so far make it seem to me like these their relationship is sort of um, a shrewd political maneuver, but some of the versions of what happens next have also made it seem like they were deeply in love with each other. Right. And yeah. I'm curious if you could speak to that. Piece. Sure. That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So, you know, I tend to be a romantic about this. <laughs> um, I tend to say, so the, the, the default in history, by the way, is always to say romance, schmomance. It's all about power. That's always the high ground to take in, in among historians. Um, and so if you say to me, can you prove that Antony and Cleopatra were in love? No, of course I can't prove that they were in love. They were politicians uh, at the absolute apex of the political pyramid in each of their own country. And they were shrewd and they had, they had agendas. But it's also possible they were in love. I find it hard to believe that Caesar and Cleopatra weren't in love. Um, um, for one thing, when Caesar met Cleopatra, she was something like 24 and he was something like 51. I mean, this was a good deal for him. <laughs> it really was. Um, and, um, and he was a very brilliant guy and she was absolutely brilliant as well. I think there's just huge attraction between the two of them. Uh, Antony and Cleopatra is a different story. He's not the same kind of mind as Caesar. Um, but it was Cleopatra simply um, uh, mercenary, uh, simply pragmatic in her relationship with him. That's not what the stories say. They say that the two of them, um, uh, you know, had this uh, club when they were in Alexandria uh, of, um, God, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically the club of the, of the people who just have a, live life large. <laughs> uh, and they and their friends are having all these parties and escapades. Um, it certainly sounds like there was a, a, a romance between uh, a romance between the two of them, even though neither one of them ever was completely willing to let down their guard and be um, uh, completely um, a romantic. You also have to remember Cleopatra was a mother. She ends up having three children by Antony, twins and then a third, a 
child is a boy. So she's two boys and a girl. And she has a son by Caesarian, uh, by Caesar, Caesarian. So she has four children. She's a mother. And she has a dynasty. She is the representative of the dynasty that sat on the throne of Egypt for almost 300 years. Um, she has to think about the future of the dynasty and the future of her children. And if she has to choose between her, her, her lover, and it's not clear whether she and Antony ever were had benefit of clergy, ever whether they're officially married. It's not clear that the queen of Egypt ever has to be officially married. It's not clear that she needs to do that. Um, if she has to choose between her children and her husband, I have no doubt that she'll choose her, her children and sacrifice her husband. We know in the end that she does negotiate with Octavian, and she's willing to give up Antony if necessary in order to survive. That's only an, a desperate last move. She and Antony try to resist, and they try to escape, and they fail. They really do. She's, she's you know, fighting all the way, and it's only at the end where she's willing to sacrifice her uh her husband, but uh, to save her children, but she's got she's got complicated loyalties, and there are loyalties that are political, but also as a mother, there are loyalties of the heart. She has loyalty of the heart to Antony, but loyalty of the heart to her children as well. Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide, and what happens to her children when they leave? Because I know that would have been obviously very important to Octavian. So how yeah. what what happens to them? Yeah, great question. So uh, before she commits suicide, uh, Cleopatra, when she realizes the situation is hopeless, sends her son by Julius Caesar, sends him Caesarian uh, to India to escape. And he first travels south in Egypt, and he's going to head to the Red Sea coast uh, and their board ship and go to India. Unfortunately, he is betrayed by uh, the... Uh, guardian who's with him, who convinces him to turn back to Alexandria on the grounds that his adopted brother, Octavian, they're both sons of Julius Caesar, would never harm him. And of course, uh, it's not true. And when he gets back to Alexandria, um, Octavian orders his execution. So he's oh. killed. Octavian has already ordered the execution of Mark Antony's son by Fulvia, uh, who's also in Alexandria. Ironically, his son by Fulvia had years before been betrothed to his own to, to Octavian's daughter by a different woman, uh, but the, the the engagement was carried off was was called off. How old are those boys when they're killed? You know? So uh, that's a really good question. Kind of a specific I, question. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Caesarian uh, uh, is seventeen uh, when he's killed. About seventeen when he's killed. Uh, I forget the age of Antillus, you know, um, they're, they're both about 16 or 17. They're both pretty young. It's always just wild to me that someone could see somebody that young as such a threat. It's like, these are children. (laughs) Well, uh, when Octavian became Caesar's heir, he was only 18 and he was already a very shrewd cookie. (laughs) (laughs) Please word. So there are three children by, um, by Antony, Cleopatra's three children by Antony, they are brought back to Rome um, to march in Antony's triumphal procession. It's really barbaric, but that's what the Romans do. Two of them do march in it. The third one um, doesn't. We think he he dies probably of a natural cause uh, before then. Uh, So uh, I think it's the twins who survive. 
But the boy doesn't survive very long. Again, we don't know how he dies. Mm. Probably a natural cause, because probably nasty, gossipy historians would have told us if Anthony Octavian had him killed. But the daughter survives. And Octavian marries her off to a prince who is raised in Rome. They're both raised in Rome. The prince is the prince of um, Algeria and Morocco. Uh, his name is Juba. And the daughter, whose name is Cleopatra Cellini, which means Cleopatra the Moon, Cleopatra Moon uh, and Juba go off to Algeria, uh, to what is today Algeria, to rule this kingdom, which they do. And there, she turns into a replica of her mother's court in Alexandria. Alexandria was the intellectual capital of the Greek world and a much more exciting intellectually city than Rome was. And Cleopatra Cellini and Juba turn it into um, a literary capital. Um, so she has a happy life. Uh, they have a son. Uh, unfortunately, their son is ultimately executed by the Roman Emperor Caligula. And that's the end of the dynasty. Um, year, centuries later, Zenobia, the queen of Palmyra, claims to be a descendant of Cleopatra. Uh, descendant? Golly, I think a descendant of Cleopatra, though I'm not really sure. Maybe just a descendant of Antony. I should watch what I say. Um, and we're not really sure if that's true. Um, but it's a fascinating claim. So, so there is this afterglow of Cleopatra through her daughter, but by Antony in, in, in North Africa. Wow, what a wild story. Yeah. So from here, it kind of strikes me that with the, diff, you know, not to draw like too big of parallel, you know, too big of conclusions, but sort of like there's this male war on this woman who's sort of like out of bounds. Right, yeah. <laughs> and from there, Rome descends into series of civil wars, right? It's not, it's not like this is the ultimate... Well, I, not quite. I mean, this this is male war on women, but um, this is actually the end of the civil wars. Okay. After uh, and Octavian defeats Antony and Cleopatra, the civil wars are over, at least for a century. There are no civil wars for a century. And Octavian goes back to Rome and he starts the business of uh, – what we would say is starting the Roman Empire, starting the Roman monarchy. A few years after this, he has himself declared Augustus. And, you know, his great uncle Julius Caesar was assassinated because he tried to become a king and he had himself named dictator for life. Um, Octavian's too shrewd to do that. Um, he claims that he's just re restored the Roman Republic, that he's renovated the Roman Republic, fixed it up a bit. And he is, to the extent that he's, his title is Augustus, which just means reverend. It's a vague title. It's not an official thing. He's also known as the princeps, which means we get our word prince from it, but it means more like the first citizen, the first citizen. He holds a series of Roman, in theory, Roman standard Roman public offices, um, like the consul and the tribune. And in theory, he rules. He's just part of the Rome's Republican constitution. But in practice, there's been a revolution. Scholars sometimes refer to it as a legal revolution. In theory, nothing's changed. But in practice, everything has changed. Um, dic modern dictators do this often as well. In theory, they say, we haven't changed anything. Laws still not 
the books, they're all the same. But in fact, the spirit of the laws are is completely different. Um, and of course, as Americans, we do this all the time. We say, hey, we still have the Constitution we adopted in 1789. But the reality of American government is worlds apart from the government of 1789. Um, uh, so uh, Octavian is doing something similar as, uh, as Augustus. Do you think it would be possible to move from here to the Julias? And I guess I'm not quite sure how, yeah. how, to, how to make that transition. You know, uh, Roman politics was elite politics. Roman elite politics was dynastic politics. It was a matter of houses. Um, I don't know if you saw Game of Thrones, but if you remember the houses competing there, in some ways, Roman politics was like that. So um, uh, Octavian had married a Roman uh, noble woman named Scribonia, uh, and she had, they had a daughter named Julia. Uh, but Octavian divorced her the day that she gave birth, the very day she gave birth to Julia, because he had found another woman who he loved more and who was an even more noble and aristocratic woman. She came, she was the product of the two most noble houses in Rome. Uh, the, uh, and, and her name was Livia. Uh, she happened to be married to somebody else at the time, but she divorced and she was pregnant by her first husband. Um, Octavian divorced his wife uh, the day that she gave birth to a daughter and he, uh, Livia divorced her husband and Livia and Octavian got married and they stayed married for the next 50 some odd years. I mean, it was a happy marriage. I've always been um, curious. It, I read Mary Beard's SPQR and she talked right, a little right. bit about the ways that um, you know, divorce, like it was women were just as there were no restrictions on women's ability to get a divorce. No, um, there were not. They could get yeah. divorced. Okay. Wow. So fascinating. Yeah. She can just be like, I'm over this and move on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, also the man she was going to marry was the most powerful man in Rome. Right. Her first husband didn't exactly have the much of a choice about the matter, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Women could do that. Yeah. Women could do wow. that. Of course it depends on the practical realities for a woman to be able to do that, she needs to have the financial independence to be able to do it. Uh, she may, might also have to face the fact that she'll lose control of her children. So, you know, it really, it, in theory, it's great in practice. It's complicated. Okay. But she does divorce her husband. She marries, uh, Augustus, um, and they have one stillborn child, but that's it. She doesn't have any more children. She has had two sons by her first husband. Uh, but none with Augustus. And the only birth child who Augustus ever has is this daughter whose mother he divorced the day she was born. And she grows up to be Julia. Uh, Julia is raised in the house of her father and her adoptive mother, her stepmother, really, not her adoptive mother, excuse me, her stepmother, Livia, on the Palatine Hill. Uh, and she is uh, also her, her, her aunt, Octavia, you know, the ex-wife of uh, Mark Antony uh, plays a big role in raising uh, her children, her own children. She has two daughters by Mark, Mark Antony, as well as uh, a son and a daughter by an earlier marriage. Uh, and uh, the children of Livia through her first marriage and Julia, as well as some visiting princes uh, in Rome. Octavia is doing all of this. Um in the royal, in the, in the, the royal compound, if you will, there's no such 
name or term, but that's what it effectively is on the Palatine Hill. So Julia uh, is very intelligent um, and very – she has a strong sense of her own importance because, after all, her father is the ruler of Rome. She is, in effect, a princess. Augustus marries her off to her first cousin, the daughter of Octavia by her first marriage, a guy named Marcellus. And it's clear that Augustus sees Marcellus as uh, his possible successor one day. They all have children. His daughter and Marcellus will have children. Augustus can adopt those children, and one of them can be his successor as the ruler of Rome. Unfortunately, Marcellus dies two years into this marriage. He dies young of, of an illness. We don't know what kind. Uh, Julia is widowed, and Augustus says, okay, uh, let's pivot. You will now marry a, my right-hand man and general, Marcus Agrippa, which she does. She marries Agrippa, and they go on to have five children together. But Julia's not all that happy with Agrippa. It's she, He's not her kind of guy, and she has affairs while she is with Agrippa. Um, she sometimes once we, we have many anecdotes about her and her wit. Uh, once she is asked how she is able, she has all the affairs, but she's had five children and they all resemble Agrippa, their father. How is that possible? And she says, I only take on passengers when the hold is full of cargo. <laughs> she's very clever. Um, Agrippa dies, and Julia continues her wicked ways. So Agrippa dies, and Augustus thinks um, she needs a guy. She needs a consort. She can't be on her own. And now he makes her marry Livia's oldest son, Tiberius. Tiberius is not a widow. Tiberius is married to uh, a woman named uh, Vipsania, who bizarrely enough is the daughter of Agrippa, who was uh, the husband of, he's the deceased husband of Julia. Doesn't matter. Uh, he is forced to, to divorce the wife who he loves and to marry Julia, who he doesn't love so much. Um, still, he might have seen this as a promotion. After all, he's now married to the boss's daughter. And the two of them have a child, but the child dies shortly after birth. Um, and that's the end of that. Clearly, they now fall apart. And Tiberius is fundamentally a military man. He's off fighting campaigns. Julia's back in Rome, and she is misbehaving. She's having a series of affairs, but the worst one is with Mark Antony's surviving son. Um, she has an affair with Mark Antony's surviving son. And her father sees this as... Um, a threat to his regime, Mark Antony's son. On top of that, um, Augustus has gone straight from have, being a wild uh, young man himself, having many affairs. Um, he is trying to pa he has passed a series of law laws, family friendly laws, to reestablish the Roman family. And it's clear that one aspect of these laws is to put women in their place. Now. It's not quite as bad as it sounds. His wife is Livia, who's one of the most powerful women in the history of monarchy, not Rome, and not to mention the world. She's an enormously powerful player. But if Octavian wants to close the door on this wicked era of Roman history, uh, the roaring late republic, uh, and wants Romans to have stay home and have babies again. And he has a problem having this daughter, 
who uh, her life is a criticism of everything he does. So he disinherits her and he sends her, he disinherits her. He divorces her from Tiberius without even getting Tiberius's consent. And he sends her into exile on the island of Pandatoria, which is off the west coast of Italy between Rome and Naples. It's a little island. It's tiny. There's nothing there, though she lives in a luxurious villa that Augustus had built for himself earlier. It's called the Villa Giulia. You can visit its ruins there today. Today, it's a resort island in the summer. And one of its utterly bizarre claims to fame is that during the Second World War, it was occupied uh, by uh, the German military. And the island was liberated by a group of American commandos led by, are you ready? Douglas Fairbanks, the actor. <laughs> really strange story of how he, through, through fast talking, he convinces the Germans that there's a lot more Americans there who've landed on this island than they really are, and they surrender uh, without a, a fight. But anyhow, I'm getting far afield. So uh, poor Julia has to spend six years on this island, uh, living in a kind of luxurious but extremely isolated um, um, exile. Uh, after six years, her father relents and lets her go back to Italy. Uh, but he doesn't let her go back to Rome. She now is living in a villa outside the city of Regium uh, in uh, southern Italy, which is near uh, the strait on the Strait of Messina, across from Sicily. And there she still is when, in the year 14 of our era, Augustus dies, and he is replaced by her ex-husband, Tiberius. Two of her sons, so she had sons and daughters, two of her sons, with a grip. Two of her sons were adopted by Augustus to be his successors, but sadly, they die young. There are rumors that Augustus's wife, the evil stepmother, uh, Livia, has poisoned them. But that, that's slander. She hasn't poisoned them. It's utter slander. Uh, they die. Uh, one dies of the results of a war wound, and the other dies of a result of a virus. In ancient times, life, expect life could be very short. You know, life could be very cruel given the state of medicine. She has a surviving son. At first, he was considered unsuitable um, to be uh, Augustus's successor. Perhaps um, he was slow mentally. There are different stories. In the last year of his life, Augustus adopts him. Um, and when Augustus dies, Augustus and Tiberius never got along all that well. I should say that, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before, after Augustus gets rid of Julia and sends her to exile, and he's lost her two sons, his adopted sons. He adopts Tiberius as his son and successor, but only on the condition that Tiberius agrees that um, that his grandson, through one of Julia's daughters, uh, will eventually inherit the throne. So uh, when Augustus dies, Ty uh, the surv Julia's surviving son is executed, perhaps the Tiberius's order, and Julia dies shortly thereafter, perhaps of starvation, perhaps of natural causes, perhaps of a broken heart. Who knows? But drama is not over for this family. Julia has two daughters. Uh, one of them is named Julia, and one of them is named Agrippina, and they both have tragic lives. Julia uh, marries someone who, who ends up breaking with Augustus. And Julia also ends up 
being forced into exile, but on a different island off the east coast of Italy. And she ends up living out her life on the island of the east coast of Italy. Uh, let me tell you about Agrippina, the daughter of Julia and Agrippa. But first, I'm sorry, I left out one important detail that I want to share with you. When Julia went into exile on the island of Panditoria off the coast of Italy, her mother, Scribonia, went with her to accompany her. She was still alive. That's a great mother. And then when she was sent to Regium, her mother went with her there. Sadly, her mother outlived her. When Julia died in the year 14, her mother's still alive. And so she sadly saw her daughter die. But I like to think of her in these all these years. She's loyal to her daughter and stays with her uh, in spite of everything. I mean, that's that's really a great mother. Anyhow, Agrippina. So Julia and Agrippa's daughter is named Agrippina. We know of her as Agrippina the Elder. She marries the son of Tiberius' brother. She marries Tiberius' nephew. He's a man named Germanicus. Germanicus is the leading man. He is handsome. He's a soldier. He's a war hero. He kills the enemy leader with his, uh, uh, single-handedly kills the enemy war leader. He's fighting on the German frontier. Um, and he, Tiberius has had to agree that he will eventually be his successor as the ruler of Rome. He's the star. And he and Agrippina have nine children. Three of them die very young and six of them survive. Nine children. On the German frontier, there's a mutiny of the troops, and Agrippina puts steel in her husband's soul to put down the mutiny. She's one tough lady. They're recalled from Germany, Tiberius, perhaps in part because he's jealous of Germanicus, and perhaps in part because he um, he has he um, feels that there's no point in Rome trying to fight a losing battle to hold on to Germany. It's a long story. They're recalled and they're sent on a new mission to the east. And there Germanicus dies, uh, perhaps of an illness, but many people feel he was poisoned uh, by the governor, uh, a governor of Syria who's jealous of him and who is a friend of Tiberius and Livia. Agrippina returns to Italy with her husband's ashes, the grieving widow, and for the rest of her life, she uh, does not get along with Tiberius. Uh, she hates Tiberius. She insults him. She believes that Tiberius and his mother, Livia, have were responsible for poisoning her husband. There's no evidence of that. It's, I think it's an unfair charge, but she believes it. And ultimately, she is sent to the same island where her mother lived in exile, the island of Panditoria. And she ends her life there, um, perhaps also of starvation. Whether she starved herself or was starved to death, it's unclear. But wait, her son, who's Tiberius' successor, her son's name is Gaius, but he's better known as the Emperor Caligula. And he, of course, is a very scandalous emperor. Uh, Caligula is replaced by, when Caligula is assassinated, he's replaced by his brother Claudius. Um, and Claudius rules as a more successful emperor, but Claudius has women troubles from the Roman point of view. His first wife, Messalina, betrays him. She's having an affair with another man, another Roman noble, and she's plotting to uh, get rid of her husband and put her uh, and take power with her, her lover. She's caught 
and she is tried and convicted. She's executed. Claudius is now widowed, and he decides to marry his niece. It's illegal for an uncle to marry his niece in Rome. So the, this, Claudius has to get the Senate to issue a decree to allow him to marry his niece, Agrippina the Younger. And he does marry Agrippina the Younger. And she becomes the, uh, the first woman of Rome, married to the emperor, her uncle Claudius. Um, her, and she has a son from an earlier marriage. His name is Nero, and she gets Claudius to adopt her son Nero. Claudius has a son from his first wife, um, the one who betrayed him, um, but he's younger than Nero. So Claudius agrees that Nero will be first in line to the throne. Claudius dies shortly afterwards. Um, there's suspicion that he was poisoned by Agrippina the Younger, but there's never any proof of that. Her son Nero now becomes emperor of Rome. He's quite young, and she has a lot of power uh, behind the power behind the throne while Nero is the emperor. She is by far the strongest woman in Rome. And that becomes a problem because as Nero grows up, he gets tired of his mother. His mother disapproves of him. He's a misbehaving teenager, a misbehaving young man. He is, he's married to Claudius's daughter, who he tires of. He divorces her and sends her where? To the island of Panditeria. Where else? The usual place where the Julias are exiled to. And she, uh, she dies there perhaps of starvation, the usual story. Nero wants to marry a beauty from the Roman nobility, a, a, a woman who herself has a past. His mother does not approve of it, and so Nero does the unthinkable. He has his mother killed. He orders the execution of his mother. It's a long story, but in the end, she is uh, you know, attacked by Nero's soldiers in her villa on the Bay of Naples. And when she realizes what's going on, that they've been sent by her son, supposedly she lifts up her garment and says, strike at my womb, because that's where I gave birth to the, the monster who's ordered my death. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's unreal. And Nero, of course, is famous for his brutality and... Famous and infamous, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Famous and infamous, yes. So he is the last of the line of Augustus. Yeah. After his death, there's a civil war and a, a new dynasty takes power in Rome and has nothing to do with the family of Augustus. So, you know, these women, Livia, Julia, the Agrippinas, um, they play a huge role in the story. In their own way, they're kind of Roman Cleopatras. There are other women I could tell you about from this period, Mark Anthony's daughters, who play a big role as as well. But but you can't really tell the story of the Roman imperial family uh, without giving women a very big role. Uh, it's why Robert Graves wrote these two novels, I, Claudius, and Claudius the God, which they're turned into this wonderful series by the BBC and PBS in the 1970s. Um, when I was young, uh, we love these, these mm. things. They're just fantastic. They're probably a little dated now. I think you can still see them on YouTube, but, um, they're quite, they're quite wonderful. And they have this built in story of, of women and, um, and their role, role in the dynasties. Oh, well, I am so grateful to you for lending us your time and um, I think helping expand the story of Rome that I think many people have heard about, but maybe not centered women in, in that story. 
your book is coming out in March. March. Okay. Yeah, it's coming out in March. And where will people be able to find it? Will it be available everywhere? On Amazon. It should be available in bookstores everywhere. It's published by Simon. It will be published by Simon and Schuster. Yeah, it's already on Amazon. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's called The War That Made the Roman Empire. Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. I'm so excited. Well, we will provide a link to the book oh, on Amazon. Thank you. Um, thank you. In our show notes. And I'm so, thank you so much for your time and your energy today. I really My pleasure. It's it. so nice to meet you. And maybe we'll meet in the flesh sometime next time you come to Dryden. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.